You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 17th day of April, 2020. Welcome to episode 376 of the Corbett Report podcast, Lies, Damned Lies, and Coronavirus Statistics. Yes, I am here today to inform you, in case you somehow managed to miss it, that the models, projections, guesstimates, case fatality rates, infection numbers, and various other statistics that have been thrown at the public in the past few months to justify the shutdown of the global economy, the implementation of a draconian police state, and the rewriting of all social norms and rules, has been a bunch of manipulated, phony hooey. But don't take my word for it. Take the word of the credentialed, respected, university-affiliated, published, peer-reviewed, white lab coat-clad experts who are the only people we're allowed to trust on these matters. There is no evidence around that doing any of these antisocial separation or prohibition or whatever you call it has any effect on the epidemic. With one exception, it it broadened or flattening the curve, what people try to do, is broadening it. And that means it takes more time. And if it takes more time, in the end, you are putting more people at risk because nobody can, for extended periods of time, follow these uh, draconic strategies or measurements. So while looking for a specific virus, for example, the coronavirus, you can examine the total population. What you will find is that presumably around 8 or 10% of the population will have some kind of virus that makes them sick. But if you examine medical practices, do your tests there to determine who is sick, then of course you would find a lot more positive cases. And if you examine hospitals and take samples there, then you would find even more corona-infected people. That is to say, depending on which proportions of the population you examine, whether it is the whole population, patients in the waiting room, patients in a clinic, or when you examine very ill patients in the intensive care unit that are about to die, you will expectedly find these 7 to 15% coronaviruses every time you do a test. However, if they die of the coronavirus or of another virus while just having also corona, that can't be determined for sure. So when you look at the death rates in Italy, you want to know where the tests have been taken, where and how have these few available tests been used. If they were used in a hospital on serious or terminally ill cases, then obviously the corona death rates rise. But uh, let's say that, uh, and and this is an entirely hypothetical scenario, that uh, that new coronavirus uh, uh, was not detected. You know, no one had noticed it, uh, and no one had found that this is a new entity. And uh, eventually, it killed 10,000 people in the U.S. based on this presentation that uh, you have respiratory distress syndrome, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Most likely, you would have counted that within the bin of influenza-like illness, which, as I said, is killing already 30 to 60,000 people. 10,000 more or less would be very difficult to pick. It would be well within the range of statistical noise. And uh, uh, probably no one would have noticed, or uh, perhaps some experts would have said that this year influenza seems to have higher activity and uh, uh, maybe give some advice to increase the vaccination rate. If it were 10,000 deaths, it's very likely that it would not have been noticed. People would not have paid attention. If if there were some news story, as I say in my 
article, it, it would have attracted less attention than uh, a game uh, between two indifferent uh, NBA teams. Uh, first, I want to say that in 30 years of, of public health medicine, I have never seen anything like this, uh, anything anywhere near like this. And I'm not talking about the pandemic, because I've seen 30 of them, uh, one every year. It's called influenza and other respiratory illness viruses that we don't always know what they are. Uh, but I've never seen this uh, reaction, and I'm trying to understand why. And I have to say, I really feel for my colleagues that are in public health practice, it's easy for me to sit in the armchair of my office and look at this and observe it and be critical or have ideas. But I really feel for them for, for three reasons. <clears throat> One is that the data they're getting is incomplete to really make sense of the size of the threat. Uh, we're getting very crude numbers of cases and deaths, very little information about testing rates, contagious uh, uh, analysis, uh, severity rates, uh, who's, who's being hospitalized, who is in intensive care, who is dying, what are the definitions to decide if someone died of the coronavirus or just died with the coronavirus. There's so much important data that is, that is very hard to get to, to guide the decision about how serious the threat is this. Other part is that we actually do not have that much uh, good evidence for these social distancing methods. There was just a, a couple of reviews in the CDC Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal, which uh, showed that although some of them might work, we don't really know to what degree, and the evidence is pretty weak. So the third problem is the pressure that is being put on our public health doctors and our public health leaders, and that pressure is coming from various places. The first place it came from was the Director General of the World Health Organization when he said this is a grave threat and public health enemy number one. I've never heard uh, Director General of the WHA use terms like that. Then at the announcement of the pandemic, he said he's doing it because of a grave, alarming, quick spread of the disease and an alarming amount of inaction around the world. That puts a huge pressure on public health uh, doctors and leaders and advisors and a huge pressure on governments. And then you get this, what seems like a cascade of decision-making that really puts pressure on countries and governments, provincial, states, uh, to sort of keep up with this, um, with this uh, action that, that was, you know, that uh, Dr. Hoffman said uh, that we're trying to avoid or should avoid, which is an overreaction. I don't know what's an, uh, what's an appropriate reaction, but I do know that I'm having trouble figuring this out. Doctor, I want to read for our viewers what the CDC says in part about how to count COVID deaths relating to that last issue we just raised. In cases where a definite diagnosis of COVID cannot be made, but is suspected or likely, like the circumstances are compelling with a reasonable degree of certainty, it is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate as probable or presumed. So, doctor, what's the problem with that? Well, in short, it's ridiculous. I spent some time earlier today just going through the CDC's manual on how to complete death certificates and part, the parts that were specifically written for physicians. And in that manual, it talks of precision and specificity, and that's what we were trained with. The determination of the cause of death is a big deal. It has impact on estate planning. It has impact on future generations. And the idea that we're going to allow people to massage and sort of game the numbers is a real issue because we're going to undermine the trust. And right now, as we see politicians doing things that aren't necessarily motivated on fact and science, the public's going to, their trust in politicians is already wearing thin. Yes, we are constantly exhorted to listen to the experts and only trust the people who are the credentialed, accredited scientists working in the field, unless they disagree with the alarmist narrative, in which case they must be ridden out of the history books, airbrushed out of the picture, Stalin, Soviet Russia style. And that is exactly what has happened with the dozens of scientists, prominent uh, researchers in relevant fields who are stepping up to contradict the alarmist narratives that are being put forth right now. And in order to understand that these are not 
fringe lunatic quacks. These are accredited, credentialed, awarded, respected experts in their field and all of the other things that we are always told to bow down before. These are those types of people. And in order to document that, I will put on the record a couple of great articles from off-guardian.org that I hope everyone has in their info arsenal. One is called 12 Experts Questioning the Coronavirus Panic, the, and the follow-up is called 10 More Experts Criticizing the Coronavirus Panic, and this involves scientists and researchers like Dr. Sucharit Bhakti, a specialist in microbiology who is a professor at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz and head of the Institute for Medical Bi Microbiology and Hygiene, one of the most cited research scientists in German history. You have uh, Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg, German phys physician specializing in pulmonology, politician and former chairman of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, and incidentally, the person I've cited on many occasions as one of the people blowing the whistle on the swine flu pandemic scam of 2009. Uh, Dr. Joel Kedner, professor of community health sciences and surgery at Manitoba University, former chief public health officer for the entire province of Manitoba. Uh, Dr. John Ioannidis, who my listeners will be familiar with from the crisis of science, professor of medicine, of health research and policy, and of biomedical data science at Stanford. Uh, you have Dr. Yoram Lass, uh, an Israeli physician, politician, and former director general of the Israeli health ministry. Pietro Vernazza, Swiss phys physician specializing in infectious diseases at the Cantonal Hospital St. Gallen and professor of health policy. Frank Ulrich Montgomery, German radiologist, former president of the German Medical Association and deputy chairman of the World Medical Association. I could go on and on and on and on, as I'm sure you get the picture. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of very prominent people who are speaking out against the panic that is being fomented on the back of the dodgy numbers and questionable science that is this pandemic panic. And uh, while we're throwing names and important uh, perspectives into this mix, I will point people also to the excellent series of videos, Perspectives on the Pandemic, that is being produced by Journeyman Pictures right now, featuring Dr. John Ioannidis, uh, Nut Witkowski, and most recently Dr. David L. Katz, talking about uh, different ways that the mainstream science that has been pushed at any rate, um, to, on the back of this panic, is demonstrably wrong and demonstrably dangerously wrong. This isn't just a academic question of, well, how many zeros should, should we add to the total uh, estimate of number of deaths? No, this, this is about what we should do in the event of this spreading panic. What, sh what needs to be done and what will these mitigation efforts, what kind of efforts can we do and what, what will be the result of them? Entire decisions that the entire world economy at this point is based on are resting on these dodgy numbers. So uh, in order to underline that point, let's turn to one of the most important papers in this regard during this entire crisis. It came out on the 16th of March 2020 under the title Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality and Healthcare Demand. It was written by a team of researchers uh, on uh, at the Imperial College COVID-19 response team led by Neil M. Ferguson. And it start, It has it in the summary, it starts with some blather about the H1N1 influenza pandemic of 1918 and goes on to talk about two fundamental strategies are possible into how to react to the COVID-19 crisis. A, mitigation, which focuses on slowing but not necessarily stopping epidemic spread, reducing peak healthcare demand while protecting those most at risk of severe disease from infection, and B, suppression, which aims to reverse epidemic growth, reducing case numbers to low levels, and maintaining that situation indefinitely. Each policy has major challenges. We find that optimal mitigation policies combining home isolation of suspect cases, home quarantine of those living in the same household as suspect cases, and social distancing of the elderly and others at most risk of severe disease, might reduce peak healthcare demand by two-thirds and deaths by half. However, the resulting mitigated epidemic would still likely result in hundreds of thousands of deaths and health systems, most notably intensive care units, being overwhelmed many times over. And it goes on in a fair degree of detail with these 
very impressive looking charts and graphs that they show here about the different options that are on the table and how they will affect the uh, the number of deaths or the number of critical care beds that will be available versus uh, what will be used in the event of this or that mitigation strategy and how the curve can be flattened or extended or uh, manipulated in various ways by different efforts. And long story short, they do come up with some pretty startling numbers that did become the basis for at least the the, the immediate proximal cause of the incredibly draconian lockdown measures that were introduced specifically in the US and UK, although obviously this did affect decisions being taken place in Canada and many other places around the world to lock down, based on some very alarming numbers of the number of deaths that would be likely to occur if this disease were left to run its course, running into half a million in the UK and 2.2 million in the US startling numbers that certainly were reported at the time. Uh, Thomas, you've, you've had a briefing with some fairly uh, sobering thoughts behind it. Yes, indeed. I've got a document here which underpins the government's science, uh, the science behind its strategy, uh, and it really does make some uh, really sobering reading, actually, Colin. Um, this is from the Imperial College uh, COVID-19 response team. Um, they're the ones who've been advising the government on this, as I say, uh, and they say uh, that uh, we are in for the long haul here. Uh, they're talking about uh, how they have changed their minds in the last few days based on what is happening in Italy. They also say demand here early in the outbreak is proving to be twice as high on hospitals than they had been anticipating, uh, with a high number of uh, uh, patients being admitted to intensive care and a high proportion of those dying. So they have redone the maths. They are looking again at what is likely to happen here in the UK. Uh, and I have to tell you, Colin, that they are talking about, even with the, the kind of measures that were hearing about today that um, they're predicting that they might uh, reduce uh, the peak critical care demand uh, by two-thirds and half the number of deaths. Uh, but even with this optimal mitigation scenario, you're still looking at an eight-fold higher peak demand on critical care beds over and above the available surge capacity uh, in the UK. They're talking that even in the most... Um, favourable scenario, uh, there would be uh, in the order of 250,000 deaths in the UK based on that strategy. Now what they're saying that the only possible conclusion is that epidemic suppression is the only viable strategy at this time uh, to uh, in effect stop the, the virus circulating. Uh, that would have to go on until a vaccine was developed in 12 to 18 months time uh, and that the social and economic effects of those measures to achieve that policy goal will be profound. It's hard to underestimate the significance of this document. The report runs us through a few different ways this could turn out depending on what our responses are. If we don't do anything to control this virus, over 80% of people in the U.S. would be infected over the course of the epidemic, with 2.2 million deaths from COVID-19. That 2.2 million deaths also doesn't account for the potential negative effects of health systems being overwhelmed. Think of the number, 2.2, potentially 2.2 million people if we did nothing. If we didn't do the distancing, if we didn't do all of the things that we're doing. And when you hear those numbers, you start to realize that with the kind of work we went through last week with the $2.2 trillion, uh, it no longer sounds like a lot, right? Wait, 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 whoa. Oh, sorry. Did we say 2.2 million deaths in the U.S.? and? 500,000 in the UK. What I actually meant to say was under 20,000. Yes, of course, those numbers have been walked back, but there are any number of explainers out there on the internet that will inform you that no, 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 these numbers haven't been fundamentally changed. It wasn't that the model was completely and utterly off. No, you see, what he was saying, what Neil Ferguson and his comrades there at the Imperial College were saying, is that if no distancing measures, no lockdown took place, then there would be widespread, unbelievable, monumental death, the likes of which we haven't seen in uh, X number of years, 
But since that took place, that's why it will be under... The problem with that theory is that in the paper itself, they very explicitly and clearly highlight the 2.2 million deaths, the 500,000 deaths figures. But any sort of, well, if we took these measures, it would be under 20,000 is very much, you have to scry the tea leaves to figure it out. But don't worry, Neil Ferguson, of course, knew that 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 weasel was embedded in the report itself, which is why he came out on Twitter to clarify. He said, I think it would be helpful if I cleared up some confusion that has emerged in recent days. Some have interpreted my evidence to a UK parliamentary committee, where he said deaths could be kept under 20,000 now, from 500,000 a month ago, uh, as indicating we have substantially revised our assessments of the potential mortality impact of COVID-19. This is not the case. Indeed, if anything, our latest estimates suggest that the virus is slightly more trans transmissible than we previously thought. Our lethality estimates remain unchanged. My evidence to Parliament referred to the deaths we assess might occur in the UK in the presence of the very intensive social distancing and other public health interventions now in place. Without those controls, our assessment remains that the UK would see the scale of deaths reported in our study, namely up to approximately 500,000. Interpretation, well, we said 500,000 deaths in the UK because there was nothing in place at the time. That was put in place. Now it will be under 20,000. So what exactly are we testing this against? What is the reality against which this is being tested? Which is to say, like all models, none. It is garbage in, garbage out. And because, it, don't worry, it's actually better than we thought because our our alarmist numbers scared governments into enacting policies that now are exactly what we wanted, and now now there will be less deaths. So don't you guys worry too much about it. And I find it particularly instructive. There was an interesting exchange on that Twitter thread underneath uh, Ferguson's comments where Shyam Iyengar um, writes, thanks, the 500k figure had spooked quite a lot, though I do think the paper clearly specified the rationale behind the thinking, lack of controls. Hope we do not reach the 20k figure, though. Prayers and best wishes to all. To which Mike Bennett responds, we sort of needed spooking, which is a particularly interesting comment in the light of this, because it certainly does raise the possibility. Lead with headline numbers about millions dying on the streets and bodies piling up, and get people's attention in order to get the policies that you want in place, and then later to say, well, you put those policies in place, so it has saved you. The magic of the lockdown has saved you from these bodies piling up. Uh, it's almost like that's a strategy that could be employed, i.e. you could release alarming statistics and models in order to scare people. But who is suggesting that that is what's really taking place here? I'm Bonnie Allen in Regina, and here in Saskatchewan, three people have died from the virus so far. And at the moment, fortunately, just one person is in intensive care. The province is still calculating what to expect, so for now, all we can go on is an internal report from two weeks ago. It predicted a worst-case scenario of hundreds of people in the ICU at one time, and as many as 15,000 people in Saskatchewan dying. But that prediction was made before most restrictions came into effect. Kelly, what do you think the strategy was behind releasing these projections? Well, I think there were two objectives. I think the first was, frankly, to scare people. What? Politicians cynically latching on to hyped-up scientific models in order to scare the public into accepting things that they otherwise wouldn't? Surely not. Yes, surely so. It does happen, and it's going to continue to happen as long as people continue to fall for the same lies over and over. Don't worry, the magicians at these institutes, these scientists floating on clouds who would never have any sort of political motive for anything and certainly haven't received $79 million of funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation this year alone, as Imperial College has, would never have any reason for skewing any of their results or making anything seem hyperbolic or alarmist in order to scare people into accepting various policies. No, never except for all the times where we have seen that demonstrably happening in the past. And this is not a trivial matter. Of course, we see similar things taking place in the U.S., where previously we have heard estimates of up to 200,000 Americans dying from people like Anthony Fossey. 
that's much lower than the 2.2 million that we were being told just a month ago, but it has been revised downwards from 2.2 million to 200,000, 100,000, 81,000. Now, of course, that has been revised downwards again. Now the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington is now estimating a peak of 60,000 deaths by COVID-19 by August of this year. So that continues to get ratcheted downwards. And no doubt, once again, the politicians will be able to pat themselves on the back to say, see, we save you. There would have been millions dead. Now there are only tens of thousands and we did it. So garbage in, garbage out. But once again, please don't take my word on that aspect of these models. Take, oh, I don't know, Anthony Fossey's. Um, I'd like to start with the question of these models, which are now getting a lot of pushback in terms of their reliability mm. when the numbers have swung, you know, 33 percent in just a couple of days. What do you say to Andy McCarthy, who wrote that piece? Well, I mean, the, the, there's a certain validity to it. I have been and still am and will always be somewhat reserved and skeptical about models because models are only as good as the assumptions that you put into the model. And those assumptions that start off when you don't have very much data at all, or the data that you have is uncertain, that you put these assumptions in and you get these wide ranges of calculations of what might happen, you know, 100,000 to 240,000 deaths. But then as you start to accumulate data, data that's real data are likely being influenced heavily by the mitigation uh, programs that you put in, the physical separations, that when real data comes in, then data, in my mind, always trumps any model. And you have to modify sure. the model and the assumptions as you get data in. So I have no problem with people who are critical of, of uh, modeling because modeling is inherently an imperfect science. So I don't, I don't really have any quibbling with that. And you just gotta make sure as you collect real data, you rely more on the data than you do on a model. Yes, the models aren't worth the paper. They are not written on with the data that is not provided to the public about them, something that viewers of the Corbett Report will know all too well in the context of things like the vigorous and very detailed model of the WTC7 destruction that NIST provided to the public. See, it was just a natural collapse due to fire. And you can see from this computer model, look at this animation on this screen. Don't worry, there is a model behind it, but we cannot release it to you because it would jeopardize public safety so you can look at this animation and clearly see that this accurately represents exactly what happened on 9-11-2001. And just as in that case, now we have these death estimate models. Millions will die unless you do what we want and then you do what we want. There, you see, we saved you. We saved you from the millions that were going to die in these models that we now admit are flawed. One understands how that game works, but again, for a slightly uh, more detail on this, and from someone who knows a thing or two what he is talking about. Let's go to Del Bigtree's recent conversation with Nut Vitkovsky, Dr. Nut Vitkovsky, who has talked at length about these models and the fact that they are indeed garbage in, garbage out, which is to say, worthless. At what point did you break away from believing in the Imperial model? How early on did you start suspecting it was wrong? From the very beginning, I never believed in it. Why? Well, because it didn't make any sense. And the, the problem is some people put out models that have no relation to reality, and then you can prove everything, including the opposite. Uh, we should use models that are actually grounded in reality. And if we do that, uh, we get realistic estimates. They can be 10% too high or even 20%, uh, but they will not be off by several orders of magnitude. When you say proper models are using real numbers, I think around the world we assumed that's what was being used. What were these models built on? I have no clue because I couldn't see any information that would allow me to evaluate what type of model was used other, other than it started with M and ended with auto. <laughs> no qualified or very few qualified epidemiologists were ever being consulted. It was all virologists 
and MDs, and they don't are not really trained in understanding the complex nonlinear uh, systems that drive epidemics, and that you have to incorporate in your thinking to make sense of the data. Yes, the only thing verifiable about these overinflated, hyped, scaremongering models is that they start with M and end with Audl. But I think we understand how this scam really works, and I think we should know by now, because it's the same scam, fundamentally, that, that's been perpetrated on the public for thousands of years at this point. And whereas in the days of old, it was the priestly class trying to convince the masses that next week the snake god is going to swallow the sun, and if I don't do the special magic ritual, uh, then the snake god will swallow the sun forever and we're all going to die and lo and behold, the next week, this the solar eclipse arrives at the predicted time, and the special magic ritual goes on, and the snake god lets go of the sun, and it's because of me, and thus you must worship me, I am your king. This is how the scam has always worked, and in the modern context, you have the modern priestly class saying, if you don't do exactly what we say and shut down the entire global economy, lock people in their homes, and uh, stop all productive human activity, then millions are going to die, and when millions don't die, you see, it's because of us. Of course, this is inherently unfalsifiable and therefore unscientific. But this is the way the scam works, and it has that scientific gloss, does it not? So it certainly sounds good until actual scientists come, on, come in and say this is based on nothing. Garbage in, garbage out. Which, even as I point out, even Anthony Fossey comes along and says, well, yes, I, I agree. They're, you know, the, these models are only as good as the data we have to go into it, and we didn't have much data to go into it. So they admit the scam, but only after they have already gotten what they wanted out of it. Uh, and if only, if only these manipulated projections and models were the only fudged numbers that we were dealing with right now, but unfortunately, as I'm sure you are aware, that is not the case. And perhaps the number that is most front and center in all coverage of the COVID-19 crisis is the death count. People are dying left and right, the bodies are piling up. Look at the numbers every day. What is the new death count today? The death count has topped uh, this X number of thousands. Oh my God. The bodies, ah. And this is, of course, what people are concentrating on. And obviously so. You can, you obviously, as Fossey and everyone else admits, you can argue about models and projections and things like that. Uh, but you can't argue about dead bodies, can you? They exist. They are countable. We, there is a body count. So clearly, we have some sort of proof of this. Do we not? How can you fudge this? How could it be possible that you fudge this? And I just am here to, to let you guys know, in case you didn't know, that this is real, y'all. This is real. This is really happening. This is real, y'all. Y'all, this is for real, y'all. This is for real. This is for real. This is Brooklyn, y'all. Family, y'all take it serious. Y'all take this thing real serious, y'all. This is for real. This is for real, y'all. This is for real. This is this is real. This is right here in Brooklyn. This is right at Brooklyn Hospital. Y'all, this is for real. They putting the bodies in 18 wheeler, y'all. Please stay inside. This is for real. This is no joke, y'all. This is for real. Hmm, I don't know. You know me, I'm the skeptical sort, so I wasn't convinced the first 47 times that we were assured that this was real, but the 48th is what did it for me. No, look, okay, please understand what I'm saying here. I am not making fun of people who are clearly in mental distress because I see them as the unfortunate victims of an incredible propaganda campaign that has been waged against the public to convince them of the imminent death that we all face from this killer disease. The bodies are piling up, and that is not even some sort of exaggeration. That is literally the way that this is being reported in the tabloid, literally tabloid media that is the lowest rung of the propaganda ladder that unfortunately has the widest audience, and people are responding to that. They are responding when the New York Post puts their 
Isle of Tears, Heart Island mass grave for COVID victims in big font with the pictures of the coffins literally piling up on their front page. And when they follow it up with story after story after story about these mass graves that are happening because so many bodies are piling up. New York City may temporarily bury coronavirus victims on Heart Island, we're told. And then the next day, drone video may show inmates burying coffins on New York City's infamous Heart Island. And de Blasio admits coronavirus victims have been buried on Heart Island, tell us the hard-hitting news reporters from the New York Post without any context of Heart Island or the practice of burial on Heart Island to lead those who at the very least do not actually read into the story, the people who glance over the headlines, to believe that something incredible and unprecedented is taking place. And you can get that from literally all of the tabloid media, Daily Mail, of course, being another prime example with a typically Daily Mail-esque headline, Workers in full hazmat suits bury rows of coffins in Hard Island mass graves as New York City officials confirm coronavirus victims will be buried there if their bodies aren't claimed within two weeks after death toll rises to 4,778. Say that three times fast. But yes, these are the types of hysterical, hyperventilating reports that people are getting completely contextless without the actual reporting to let you know that no, this is not some unprecedented new thing that's taking place only because of the mass amounts of people who are dropping like flies from COVID-19. You can garner that from obviously different sources. For example, Reason.com had this article up on April 10th, the same day that de Blasio admitted that coronavirus victims have been buried on Heart Island. I can't believe it. Mass graves in the United States. I never thought we would have seen it. But Reason.com had this article up. No, New York City is not running out of burial space due to COVID-19, in which Elizabeth Nolan Brown writes, Century and a half old Bronx burial site sparks panic on social media. The COVID-19 death toll in New York City right now is chilling, more than 4,400 at last count. So are images of coffins being buried in mass graves. It's hard to see things like that and not feel the weight of those numbers all the more viscerally, which makes it all the more imperative to contextualize and not sensationalize those images. Unfortunately, a lot of professional media has been erring on the side of, look at what America has come to. There are so many dead bodies, they have to start hiring people to dig mass graves. The site cemetery on Hart Island is indeed tragic. It has been for the past 151 years. Since 1869, prison labor has been used to bury unclaimed and unidentified New Yorkers in mass graves of 150 adults or 1,000 infants, states the Hart Island Project website. Families of those buried there were only allowed to start visiting in 2014. Since 1980, 68,955 people have been buried in mass graves on Hart Island, notes the project, which is dedicated to telling stories of those laid to rest there. That's around 1,724 people per year, 33 per, per week, or a little under five per day for the past 40 years. New York City Department of Corrections spokesman uh, Jason Kirsten puts the average a little lower, telling Reuters that prison laborers bury around 25 bodies on Hart Island each week. Kirsten now estimates that there are upwards of 100 coffins per week being buried there. So yes, there appears to be a recent spike in burials in these mass graves, but that's not because there are so many dead that the city has run out of burial space elsewhere. It's because more people are dying right now, and that includes people who don't have anyone to claim their bodies. End quote. Well, that puts a little bit more context into this. This is not a new practice. This is a 151-year-old practice. Uh, that the media is just starting to put on their front page and sensationalize. But even Elizabeth Nolan Brown gets it slightly wrong here. It's not simply because there are so many bodies that they, uh, that they now have more bodies to bury, more unclaimed bodies to bury. It is also because, as, as is reported way down at the bottom of some of these New York Post articles, no, the uh, New York Med uh, Medical Examiner's Office has changed their criteria for what counts as an unclaimed body. It used to be... 30 days. The, uh, they would hold a body for 30 days. Now they are holding them for 15 days. So there is less of a window for bodies to be claimed, which undoubtedly contributes some to the increase in bodies. That's not to say that people are not dying, that there is no death, but it is to say that even that, even that statistic of how many bodies are, are being buried on Hart Island is itself a product of a chain of decisions that have been made 
in as this crisis is ongoing, things are changing, and the the stats, the way that these numbers are being manipulated, actually changes the outcome of how many bodies get sent to Heart Island, amongst other things. And it's important to understand as something that many of the uh, dissenting scientific voices are pointing out right now, so many of the different statistics and measurements and ways that we could theoretically get a handle on what actually is happening through numbers are not being are not reliable because the criteria are being changed in the middle of this crisis. So that we can't compare apples to apples with any of these numbers on so many different levels. One great example of which is the simplest of all the questions. There is a body count. This is not some theoretical pie-in-the-sky thing. People, well, have people? People have died from a disease. How many people? This should not be a difficult thing to determine, but it is because, of course, that stat continues to change, or the the metric by which that stat is calculated continues to change, because it is a calculation. It is an estimation. It is something that is written down on a death certificate by a doctor working on certain guidelines. So here's a prime example of that. You may have seen this very scaremongering headline in recent days. Uh, This one, let's take it from The Guardian. It was in the New York Post and elsewhere, but on The Guardian has New York City coronavirus death toll jumps past 10,000 in revised count. Revised count? What does that mean? So as this story goes on to say, New York City has revised its COVID-19 death toll sharply upwards to more than 10,000 people hitting an important psychological milestone. We're in the five digits now, people. And it happened overnight, just like that, because they changed the criteria. With the city now firmly established as being at the heart of the global coronavirus crisis, and it jumped into that top position because of this change. The soaring death toll has been fueled by the adding of 3,778 people who were not tested for COVID-19, but are presumed to have died from it. All right, well, there you go. So this is the criteria that we're using. Well, they probably had it, so let's just add them. And now it's 10,000. Well, there you go. So as you can see, we cannot take these numbers at face value. They are judgment calls. And you might agree with the judgment that's being made, but the underlying point is that the numbers are clearly a political product. They are the result of guidelines that are being issued and judgment calls that are being made by not even political figures. We're talking about appointees who were not elected by anyone. And in this case, quite specifically, of course, uh, in the U.S. context, we're talking about the CDC, and that's the example we can turn to. We we already heard earlier in this uh, program about Dr. Scott Jensen uh, 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 talking about the ways that the CDC has changed their death coding guidelines for COVID-19 and how he, as a practicing doctor, finds that absolutely incredible. Um, And he talks about that. So I I will throw you back to that interview. I I suggest you check it out in its entirety for more of that context. But let's look at that in some more detail. Let's take it from the CDC itself, which on March 24th, 2020, issued COVID-19 alert number two, new ICD code introduced for COVID-19 deaths, introducing U07.1 as a new uh, ICD code, a, a, a basically a code for death certificates that to code for a COVID-19 death. And if you read through this document, it says, will COVID-19 be the underlying cause? And it says the underlying cause depends upon what and where conditions are reported on the death certificate. However, the rules for coding and selection of the underlying cause of death are expected to result in COVID-19 being the underlying cause more often than not. So they admit they are changing the guidelines specifically to make COVID-19 more likely to be classified as the underlying cause of death. And in a a, a later section, it says, what happens if the terms reported on the death certificate indicate uncertainty? Well, yeah, that's a good question. What if we don't know exactly what the cause of death was? It says, if the death certificate reports terms such as probable COVID-19 or likely COVID-19, these terms would be assigned the new ICD code. Please bear in mind what that is saying. If it is uh, probable or likely COVID-19 related, then it was cause of death COVID-19. That's how you code it. And it is saying it is not likely that NCHS will follow up on these cases. They are letting the doctors know, don't worry, we're not going to check into it. 
we're not even gonna we're not even gonna examine it ultimately you just code for it it's a covid-19 death just add it to the death number please they are telling doctors outright to do it and there's more information about that they followed up in april of 2020 with vital statistics reporting guide uh, guidance report number 3 talking about cause of death reporting specifically when it comes to covid-19 and the more detail goes into it there so i will put that link in the show notes for you to follow but you don't again don't take my word for it or don't take the cdc's own documentation for it you can of course get this from the horse's mouth in this case the horse being deborah burks Uh, can you talk about your concerns about deaths being misreported uh, by coronavirus because of either uh, testing or standards for how they're characterized So I think in this country, we've taken a very liberal approach to mortality. And I think the reporting here has been pretty straightforward over the last five to six weeks. Prior to that, when there wasn't testing in January and February, that's a very different situation um, and unknown. There are other countries that if you had a pre-existing condition And let's say the virus caused you to go to the ICU and then have a heart or kidney problem. Some countries are recording that as a heart issue or a kidney issue and not a COVID-19 death. Um, Right now, we're still recording it. And we'll, I mean, the great thing about having forms that come in and a form that has the ability to mark it as COVID-19 infection, the intent is right now that those, if someone dies with COVID-19, we are counting that as a COVID-19 death. Let's underline this point for the heart of thinking. That number that's being flashed on your TV screens and on the front pages of newspapers and on websites every single day that is being flashed in front of you, the number of deaths, the number of bodies that's being piled up, is a padded number. It is being generously added to by a generous classification that anyone dying with COVID-19 is dying of COVID-19, not a trivial distinction and not some fancy flight of conspiracy theorizing. It is being admitted to by the officials in charge of doing this themselves. And just in case there was any doubt, this is not simply an American phenomenon. This is happening all around the globe. You might recall that just last month I was answering the question, what's up with the Italian mortality rate on questions for Corbett, where we looked at the incredible numbers coming out of Italy, and I mean incredible, incredible in the most literal sense, because they are not credible. Uh, And I went through that in some detail in that uh, edition of the Questions for Corbett podcast. I hope you will go back and uh, watch or rewatch that one. I think there was a lot of good information in it, but uh, that type of information is being compiled um, by some of the people who are diligently deconstructing the dissembling discourse of the doomsday disease peddlers. like offguardian.org, off-guardian.org, which, as I say, is doing incredible work on this issue. And one example of that is an article they posted up a couple of weeks ago on COVID-19 death figures, a substantial overestimate, where they note some of the different tactics, essentially the same tactic that's being deployed by multiple health ministries in multiple governments around the world right now. For example, again, as we noted in that Questions for Corbett that I just mentioned, Professor Walter Ricciardi, advisor to Italy's health minister, explained this, the Italian incredible number of deaths being reported, was caused by the generous way the Italian government handles death certificates. The way in which we code deaths in our country is very generous in the sense that all people who die in hospitals with the coronavirus are deemed to be dying of the coronavirus. They go on to talk about Germany. On March 20th, the president of Germany's Robert Koch Institute confirmed that Germany counts any deceased person who who was infected with coronavirus as a COVID-19 death, whether or not it actually caused death. (laughs) Ireland, Northern Ireland's HSC Public Health Agency is releasing weekly surveillance bulletins on the pandemic. In those reports, they define a COVID death as individuals who have died within 28 days of first positive result, whether or not COVID-19 was the cause of death. 
They're openly admitting it. And one of the craziest actually comes out of England, where uh, this article notes, NHS England's Office of National Statistics releases weekly reports on nationwide mortality. Its latest report, at the time of this article, uh, week 12, March 14th to 20th, was released on March 31st and made special mention of COVID-19, explaining they were going to change the way they report the numbers in future. The ONS system is predicated on the registration of deaths, meaning they count not the number of people who die every week, but the number of deaths registered per week. This, naturally, leads to slight delays in the recording of numbers, as the registration process can take a few days. However, with coronavirus deaths, since it's a national emergency, they are now including provisional figures, which will be included in the data set in subsequent weeks. This leaves them wide open to, either accidentally or deliberately, reporting the same deaths twice, once provisionally, and then once officially, a week later just lunacy on top of lunacy piling up as always in the name of this crisis. It's a national emergency. We have to change the game as it's being played in the middle of the game so that we can change the score on the scoreboard. And that score, of course, is the number of dead bodies. It is a morbid and disgusting practice that is being played right now. It is a unfortunately, a sport that is being played by these health ministries to see what kind of tally they can get on their scoreboard. It is a macabre game, to be sure, and it is taking place to scare the public, to alarm the public. And also, of course, there is the monetary incentives that come along with this, as Dr. Scott Jensen points out in that interview I referred to earlier. Uh, the, uh, the medical system, actually, the doctors benefit from having patients dying of COVID-19 and being put on ventilators. They literally profit from it. But, of course, we're not supposed to look at the dollar incentive of these saintly priests in the white lab coats. Now, it gets even crazier when you really start to think about it, because... You would think that in the event of some sort of pandemic, uh, the most basic number, the most simplest number that you could possibly come up with is the case fatality rate for the disease, because that seems like it's a pretty, again, straightforward thing to note. This, as its name implies, of course, is a ratio that compares the deaths from a certain disease to the total number of people diagnosed with the disease. So we've already seen that the numerator on that ratio, the deaths from a certain disease, can and is manipulated. Well, the denominator, surely at least we have that, right? The number of people diagnosed with the disease. I mean, that's just, again, this is just binary. Either they have it or they don't. They were diagnosed or they weren't. This is pretty straightforward. How can you even fudge a number like that? Well, just ask someone like Wolfgang Wodarg, who we did hear from at the beginning of this episode. And again, the, the links to all of this are in the show notes, so please uh, please do make use of that resource. But let's take this from a different source. This time, Kevin Ryan over at his blog on digwithin.net, where he had a recent post called Has COVID-19 Testing Made the Problem Worse? And that article starts by noting concerns about the virus SARS-CoV-2 that causes the disease called COVID-19 have centered around reported mortality rates. However, errors in reporting those rates have led to confusion regarding the true health impacts. Because estimated rates are dependent on the test used to identify infected patients, understanding that test and its history could lead to much-needed clarity. Errors in reported mortality rates have come from mistakes in calculation. An example has been equating the measured case fatality rate, deaths divided by patients actively infected, with the actual mortality rate, deaths divided by patients who were ever infected. The latter number is unknown and will not be known until antibody teeters can be performed to see who has previously been infected. But that actual mortality rate is expected to be much lower, perhaps around 0.3%, as estimated by an epidemiologist from Stanford University, in that case referring to Dr. John Ioannidis. Another common error has been attributing the deaths of all infected people to COVID-19, regardless of other pre-existing illnesses. This error has been magnified by governments mandating that all deaths of presumptive patients be listed as deaths from COVID-19, even if the patient was never tested for SARS-CoV-2 at all. The mortality rate errors would be further worsened if there were errors in testing for the presence of the virus. 
What is becoming increasingly clear is that there have been serious questions regarding the reliability of that testing. The test in question uses a technique called reverse transcriptase quantitative polymerase chain reaction, RT-QPCR, to identify the presence of RNA from SARS-CoV-2. Testing follows different protocols in different countries, and the first problem was seen in China, the reported origin of the virus. And as that article goes on, uh, Kevin Ryan points out the Chinese mystery of a peer-reviewed published article in the Chinese Journal of Epidemiology that was published on March 5th, 2020, that concluded that nearly half or even more of patients that were testing positive for SARS-CoV-2 in the Chinese tests that they were using uh, did not actually have the virus. In other words, half of the results were false positives. And that study was withdrawn uh, when the and the data underlying it was also withdrawn, so it is not available for review. When the doctor in uh, the, who is leading the study was asked for explanation, he said that he could not cite a reason for withdrawal of the paper, only saying it was a quote sensitive matter. And uh, the the mystery uh, deepens from there. But yes, I mean there have been indications that the Chinese test was giving as much as half false positive results. Uh, And then Kevin Ryan goes on to break uh, down the WHO guidance and testing, and then the US test, which was developed uh, uh, separately. So there's there's a lot of information in there. A lot of other sources have been talking about the, the problems involved in this testing. But anyway, the point I hope stands that yes, even the denominator in that case fatality rate cannot be taken at face value. So even some of the most basic information that we would need in order to get a handle on the real scale of what is happening here cannot be taken at face value. I mean, even the people who are involved in creating the rules and guidelines would admit that this this is a judgment call. And even if you believed they were doing it all for the best purposes, they can still get it wrong, and it still changes the game in the middle of the game, so that we cannot compare apples to apples, and we can see gigantic spikes in infections or in number of dead on any given day because of changes that take place in the way that these things are being calculated. And I could go on and on and on and on about the statistics and the tests and the various ways that the numbers that they are using to scare you with can and are being fudged, manipulated, cooked, and otherwise hyped. But I hope, at the very least, I've given enough information that you can follow the various things that I've talked about. Again, all of the sources are in the show notes in case you need to refer back to them. And there are many, many other cookie crumb trails that we could follow along these lines, but I think it's important to come down to the bedrock question. So why is this important? Why does it really matter to have all of these numbers actually pinned down and be able to compare apples to apples and truly get a handle on what's going going on right now? And I think that should be obvious as we see, as I've pointed out in this podcast, in the recent past, we are plunging into the greatest depression. The numbers added to the American unemployment rolls in the past four weeks have now topped 22 million people. It is absolutely unprecedented what is happening right now on the result of the hysteria that has been generated by these numbers. And these numbers are causing people to go into mental distress and have breakdowns and have viral videos showing the bodies piling up and other such things. It is causing insanity and it is being used as a justification for the erection of the corona world order, which I also recently talked about here on the podcast. And I think a good article for getting down to that base root of what is going on and why it is important to be exposing these the statistical chicanery that's taking place uh, was published uh, to whatsupwiththat.com in the last uh, week by Charles Rotter. It's an article entitled Coronavirus Death Predictions Bring New Meaning to Hysteria. And in that article, Rotter goes on to write, uh, fact is the epidemic worldwide, far from growing exponentially, is slowing. And that was to be expected per what's called Farr's Law, which dictates that all epidemics tend to rise and fall in a roughly symmetrical pattern or bell-shaped curve. AIDS, SARS, Ebola, Zika all follow that pattern. So does seasonal flu each year. COVID-19 peaks have already been reported in China, South Korea, and Singapore. But as this entire 
our uh, podcast goes on to say, essentially, well, can we trust any of those numbers? But anyway, importantly, Farr's law has nothing to do with human interventions, such as social distancing to flatten the curve, and indeed predates public health organizations. It occurs because communicable diseases nab the low-hanging fruit first, in this case the elderly with comorbid conditions, but then find subsequent fruit harder and harder to reach. Until more or less now, COVID-19 has been finding that fresh fruit in new countries, but it's close to running out. So while many people assume that China contained its epidemic with draconian regulations, we actually have no evidence of that. Even the New York Times admitted South Korea recovered far more quickly with measures nowhere on the scale of China, although of course the Times still attributes that to human intervention, which assigns no role to Mother Nature. When the coronavirus epidemic ends and the public health zealots inevitably slap themselves on the back for having prevented their own ridiculous scenarios, don't buy it. This isn't to say that through thorough handwashing several times a day and not sneezing and coughing in others' faces won't help. It will. But without the authoritarian and economically devastating measures the U.S. and other countries are taking that are wrecking the world economy, there will be no apocalypse now or in the future. The streets are empty not because of direct effects of the disease, but from fear and from government dictates, as in a cognate of dictatorship. End quote. And that's what it comes down to. We are living through a period of dictatorship. Openly so, where governors who are being questioned as to where they derive their right to shut down businesses or to say, this is an essential service, this is not an essential service. Where, where did you derive that authority? Who, how did that land in your lap? They're saying, well, we, we're doing it now and you can ask me later because we're, it's an emergency. It is a dictatorship that is happening right now. Any pretense of any sort of Bill of Rights in the U.S. context or constitutions or any other sort of legal documents in whatever country you happen to live in are being exposed for what they are right now, which is pieces of paper that uh, just have some words written on them, but certainly the people who presume to rule over you do not have to follow them. And I think the underlying point that someone like Rotter is making there is that these numbers are important because this essentially is a narrative that is being given to the public right now on the back of these numbers. Look, look at this death toll. It keeps going up. Look at these infection numbers. It keeps going up and up and up. And look, oh, look, we can, you know, if we don't flatten the curve, we're all going to die. And because of this statistical chicanery and these projections and models and all of this, all of the other tricks and tactics that um, I'm exposing here and many, many more that we don't have time to go into, they are creating the narrative that they want. So what we're going to need to do is to lock everybody in their homes and you will not get out until you have a vaccine or can be proven to have some sort of immunity and you will be followed and tracked and surveilled for the rest of your life and we will have to come in and make sure that you have the social credit score with the QR codes and the UBI and everything else that goes along with the Corona World Order in order to save you from the snake god. I mean from COVID-19. That is the narrative. And unfortunately, what this demonstrates, what the lunacy of the last few months has demonstrated, is that control of that narrative, the ability to create a narrative like that, is the underlying fundamental control of society. Because as I pointed out in Questions for Corbett that was recorded just 24 hours ago, yes, the lockdown is happening in your mind. The lockdown happens because there is mass compliance with it because people believe these numbers unquestioningly, these numbers that are clearly and admittedly being fudged and manipulated and finessed and generously coded and all of the other words that they use to describe the cooking of the books that's going on right now, because people believe in that narrative that is being uh, forced on us on the back of those manipulated numbers, they will self-quarantine and self-isolate and do all of the things, do anything that the government says. Oh, I needed an immunity passport now? Okay. Oh, I need a, we, we need to get uh, special QR code apps and that'll trace us and give us green or red scores. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I guess that's going to happen now. Oh, mandatory vaccinations? Well, look, I mean, look, look how many people are dying. I guess we have to do this. So you understand, I think, 
why it is so important. This is not an academic exercise to question the numbers that are being put forward here. And look, I am not coming down and saying this is definitely this and this is definitely that and I this is the real number and this is the fake number. No, I'm saying there is so much confusion being sown right now that of course we do not have a handle on all of these numbers and what they really mean, but that is the point. And the point, again, is that the, if they can create a narrative, then that is a switch that has been put in place. And they will flip that switch whenever they need to in order to enact whatever political policies that they want, as long as we go along with the narrative, as long as we've demonstrated that we will respond when they flip that switch. They will flip that switch again. Do you think they will not? And it very well could precipitate in a situation where, oh, you crazy conspiracy theorists, you want this lockdown to end? Okay. Lockdown over, everybody out. Okay, everybody enjoyed the sunshine for a month or two. And then, uh-oh, second wave, you crazy conspiracy theorists. See, it's spreading again. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. They're going up again. Look at these mass graves that have been there for 151 years. Look, look, see what you did, you crazy conspiracy. So if they can control that narrative, then they can control what happens as a result of this. In the, They can create a new second wave, again, out of whole cloth if need be. There are many scenarios that I, I think we can all imagine playing out as a result of this, but it all comes back down to controlling the narrative by controlling the statistical narrative. I mean, you, the numbers don't lie is the old adage, isn't it? When, in fact, as we know, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. So, the underlying point of today's podcast, in case you did not get it, is that no, you should not trust these numbers that are being thrown around at face value. Know that even such a number as the death count, which you would think is a simple question of adding up the number of bodies piled in a room or something, is not that simple. It is a political calculation. It is a judgment that is being made right now, and it can be manipulated to pad those numbers. Please keep this in mind, and please share these facts with other people who are literally melting down and losing their minds over the hysteria that is being generated right now on the back of these lies. Once again, I would like to remind you that all of the things that I'm talking about, all of the articles and videos, are linked up in the show notes. Please go back to the original sources of this. Please go and study what these different experts are saying on both sides of the issue and come to your own conclusions. But I think it is vitally important that we have this conversation right now because the narrative switch can be flipped on or off if we don't question it. That's going to do it for this week. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you for joining me for another edition of the Corbett Report podcast. I'll be back with more information on CorbettReport.com on a daily basis. I hope you'll be there to join me. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.